0: Today on In the House, we examine how one would build cost-efficient yet thoughtfully designed homes on a large scale. We sit down with Nathan Seams, a senior architect with a design-build firm in Austin, Texas that specializes in 3D-printed homes. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. Nathan, good to meet you. Um, why don't you... Can you take a second and maybe tell us about yourself and uh, what it is
1: you do and just kind of give us a little history. Yeah. How far back do you want me to go? Uh, It's up to you, buddy. We (laughs) got all the time. (laughs) Iowa. Oh my God. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, I was born in the great state of Iowa that no one's ever heard of before and usually confused with Idaho. Um, uh, Yeah, I grew up there. I went to college, went to undergrad at... University at Iowa State University. Um, it was like kind of torn when I went to university. I was like, okay, I'm interested in landscape architecture. I'm interested in structures engineering. I'm interested in architecture. Had to pick one, so I um, chose landscape architecture. Uh, came out of there with a bachelor's degree and then like pretty much moved to um, Orange County, California. Right away from my first job. Uh, worked there for seven, eight years. Went to the beach a lot. Culture shock um, moving from Iowa. <laughs> oh, major, major, major culture shock. <laughs> um, and I was originally, I was like, okay, I, I am, I hate Orange County. Like, I either want to get up to L.A. or San Francisco or down to San Diego. But the job was like, I don't know, the job was so good that I ended up staying there for seven <clears> years and I was telling myself, okay, spend two years here and then get the hell out and it just didn't work. So um, yeah, I worked at a firm there and then um, I just kinda got bored or tired of the work. Like we were working, we were doing, we were designing stuff for like a lot of wealthy people, doing a lot of multi-family work a lot of private residential work and it was just like you guys are so demanding and i'm kind of tired of you telling me what to do all the time <laughs> and i'd kind of like i felt like i hit this ceiling in my at my current job and um then the earthquake in in haiti happened in 2010 and my dad called me up and he said hey do you wanna i'm going with some guys to haiti to like help build some houses. <laughs> Do you want to come with me? And I was like, originally I was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> like if, if I'm, if I'm taking vacation, I'm going to like Hawaii. Or I'm going, you know, like Haiti. Hell no. Um, but I ended up going for two weeks and it was, it like changed my whole perspective on like design and architecture and construction. Um, like for the first time I saw like, how people were really living in a third-world country, like what they didn't have, mm-hmm. and um, it just blew my mind, and it, it made me, like, <clears throat> inspired to want to use my design um, skills, like, for people that typically can't afford them, because it seems like, especially in America, like, it's the, you know, it's the wealthiest, the upper class yeah. that can afford, like, design services, right? And, um... Uh, <laughs> Like, the, the lower class, like, never, you know, never get to see any of that. So, um, got back from that trip. And then six months later, ended up moving to Haiti to work for a non-profit. And um, first year, we were doing temporary housing. We put up, like, 15,000 temporary shelters for people who have lost their, lost their homes. What are you making those out of? Yeah. I mean, it was... It was interesting. Like, it didn't really make sense what we made them out of. Um, <laughs> cause like, all, so it was like two by four wood frame, 12 by 12 little boxes. But like all of the wood, because there's no wood available in Haiti, um, because they cut down all their trees like years ago. So like all of that wood was imported from the U.S. Um, and then it was, we put a tin roof on it. And we wrapped it in this plastic uh, and it was supposed to like last any anywhere from like minimum a year up to like two maybe three years and then uh, the homeowner was supposed to be able to at some point like take the tarp off and like make it more permanent like add add to it in a more permanent fashion um, yeah so did that happen not very often. Yeah. I don't think it... One of, one of the, the things that, like, really kind of hurt my feelings when I got there was that, like, we would give these out to different people that we thought needed them. And then, like, we would see, like, our stuff just being, like, carried away, like, on carts and by people and sold in pieces. So they would, like... We would help them assemble their house... And then they, they they would disassemble it and then go sell, like, the wood to get money. So a lot of them didn't even live in there. Wow. Which is really sad. But um, that was kind of our fault, like, because we didn't do the research on, like, what do they really want, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if we would have given them something that they really want. What's wanted, the need? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, no, I don't think anyone ever asked the question, like, oh, what, you know, what do you... What would you like to live in? What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it be made of? Um, So that happened. And then um, the second year I spent most of my time working on uh, rebuilding this orphanage that had come down in the earthquake. So we completely redesigned it, built it. And I got to design and like be on site, like managing a hundred, Haitian workers <laughs> building a, That's a lot of people building a structure in Haiti is is it's wild. Did you have to curate skill sets, or did people come knowing? Oh, we had we had to teach them a lot. Um, I mean, they have they have masons over there, but not to the same skill level that we have here, and their their building methods are just sure a lot different. They don't like to use steel
2: yeah. in
1: their in their CMU block structures. <laughs> So, um, there's just a a lot of stuff you have to keep track of when you're building something over there, because even like when, when you're, you're paying for the concrete trucks to come deliver the concrete to your site to pour the slab, like a lot of the times they'll like stop off on the way to your place. They'll stop off at like three or four other places and like, you know, sell part of your concrete away <laughs> no way yeah and then like before they get where's to my you. yard <laughs> yeah. and so you just have to you have to be on them like constantly otherwise like you're. it's wild <laughs> it's super wild i i um i ended up buying this motorcycle while i was there and i was like <laughs> driving back and forth between the job site and where i lived which was like 20 minute ride um, had never ridden a motorcycle before in my life until I like bought this dual sport and, um, it was, it just felt like anything goes. I mean, whatever you can get away with, you can do there. No one's watching. Yeah, there, there's no regulations. No, there's regulations. no code,
0: There's no inspections. It's just, it's that's,
2: that's interesting from a life sa- safety standpoint, like, uh, that you, you know, the the erecting of whatever you're doing. And then at the end of the day, people are going to reside in this. Like how do you, how, how much integral and care do you, you give to that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, what was I going to say? I just lost my thought. Oh, um, (laughs) it's funny. We showed up to this orphanage site and, um, once like the local community found out that we were going to rebuild the structure and like how big it was going to be, and, like, the nonprofit that was involved in, that I was working for, that was going to do this, all of a sudden, they're like, well, you have to, you have to submit for a permit, and we were like, <laughs> there's, what, okay, what do you mean, what, what do you need to see? What, what's like, the H.J., what, yeah. <laughs> yeah <like> what, <laughs> what drawings do you need to see? And, um, so, like, well, you know, we don't, we don't exactly know, just, you know, give us some drawings, and. We'll review them and take a look at them, and you have to pay us this fee, by the way. Right. We're like, uh, oh, there it is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
3: Can I? watch? of course. Come on, man. I Come on, man. Throw whatever you want. So, obviously, what you were doing, incredible stuff, incredible subject matter. Um, would you mind talking a bit about the budget side of it? How do you budget for that stuff? I and mean, who's I, know, I heard you say nonprofit Like yeah. you're given a set amount and that's your budget for that project and you have to kind of just figure it out or how, how does all that work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the nonprofit I worked for <laughs> don't judge me based on this. This is just, um, yeah, this has no reflection on me, but, and no offense to anyone who, yeah, yada, yada, yada. Um, mm-hmm. Boo! <laughs> what? Say <laughs> it. So, the nonprofit that I worked for had a really, really close relationship with um, one, no, two particular news anchors at Fox News. And they were like big, big donors. One of them was actually Greta Van Susteren who's no longer on Fox News. Mm-hmm. The I'm other one was yeah, Sean Hannity. Yeah. They both came down like repeatedly. Um, just to like see progress. And the weird thing is like our budget kept increasing because, right. um, when Greta got involved, she gave like a million or two million to the project and then she would put the project on Fox news and then like we would continue to get more and more money coming in. So yeah. the project just like, it kept growing and growing and growing. I think we had, it's like a 10 acre site and we were originally just going to build like a... Thirty thousand square foot multi-purpose building, which would be dormitories, classrooms, cafeteria, outdoor kitchen, restrooms, all that stuff. It grew into like soccer fields, basketball courts, like a machine shop, um, usable spaces. Yeah. So the awesome. budget, the budget was constantly moving. I guess is what I'm I'm trying to say. So. It was pretty much impossible. And it felt like there was really no budget. It felt like anything we wanted to do, they could find the money for. So we didn't. Um, it's incredible. So either you're in the poorest place possible and you have no budget, or you're in the
3: richest place possible and there's no budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so many people like in the US wanted to donate to it because they could say, you know, look look what I did with my money. And my sure, money. yeah. PR value. Yeah. Charity. It's all about marketing.
2: Really. Yeah. I'm sure afterwards, like, seeing kids playing soccer out in the field is just, like, it you makes your heart melt. It's like a nice oh, thing. Man. So, yeah. were those amenities
3: that were added, were they requested or kind of to the very first point, was there any research done to go, hey, you guys should have a soccer field, so we'll just put one <laughs> in, or...
1: Uh, I wish, I I feel like I fought to get the community's input on things, but I felt like um, the headquarters of where the nonprofit was in North Carolina, there were people there that wanted to make decisions um, from there that were not willing to come down and see like the state of things in Haiti. And so you had a bit of that going on where people in North Carolina were like pulling some of the strings just because they wanted to have a say in the matter uh-huh. and they wanted to be able to have a little bit of their control and justify their job, right? Um, so there, there was a lot of stuff that got built that um, probably would have been built differently if we would have really engaged the community. <laughs> Like oh, yeah. one of our first ideas was we were gonna build a, a indoor um, kitchen, mm-hmm. and so we showed some of the, the people that cook for the kids the plans for that, and they're like, "No, we can, we won't we won't use this. <laughs> like we you can build wow. this, we won't use this. They don't cook out, They don't cook inside. They only cook outside." Um, they cook, like, with these big ch- charcoal pits. Okay. And so you have to be outside to do that. But So there were little changes like that that we had to make. Like, once someone told us, hey, you dumb. It's not customary. You dumb Westerner. <laughs> like, Which happens in most places, Westerner's go. It happens in most places.
3: <laughs> so then the net effect, positive or negative of all that?
1: On the, key, on the on Haitian the community.
3: community?
1: Yeah. Gosh, that is... Yeah, I, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, whew, that's a tough one. What? What's the negative? Like, what's the, what's the cons? Why is the community I not can, accept I, it? I can, well, I can come up with some cons. Um, one of the things that happened was... So, we employed 100, 150 Haitian construction workers. We paid them a higher wage than like traditionally they would get, which you, you would think is like oh that's awesome right? Like they're getting they're making good money. The problem is um, once our job was over, oh, it's not they, it. it's not that easy to go out and get another job. So like your typical Haitian person might work for a year and then might not have work for a year and then might find work in, in another year later, right? So you, like, get them used to having this income coming in, and so they're, they're buying new things, they're spending money on things that they've never been able to buy before. And then the project's over, their income's gone. I think it had, I think it had some negative impacts on, on the workers, for sure.
3: Um, I've seen that. Yeah. And it's 100% valid. It's human nature. Nobody wants to make less than they made before. You get comfortable yeah. with it. You get taken away. It doesn't matter how much you prepare somebody or how much you tell someone this is a short term perk for you. Yeah, it, I absolutely agree. Yeah,
0: that's interesting because that's definitely something you don't. I don't think you you think about at the time. Um, I remember watching a documentary, and this is kind of you know a different subject, but. I think it's a. It was about all these uh, shoe manufacturers that, you know, it's like you, you buy one pair of shoes and we'll donate a pair of shoes. So, you know, all these people buy these shoes because it you know gives them this this feeling. Well, I'm yeah. doing something good for uh, whatever community, and come to find out, um, the the people in that community who are trying to make shoes end up losing their their livelihood. Yeah. Because there's such this you, you know all these this influx of basically free shoes yeah and yeah it actually ends up putting a lot of people out of business and ruins you know ruins their livelihood yep. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting that you bring that up because yeah you think even you know, good there could be bad on, yeah on the one hand you you really think you're you're doing something good and and it's it's like you know is it better just to leave it alone and let them, you know, I I don't know. I don't know how you navigate.
3: It's your motives. True. And he alluded to it a little bit. If you've got political motives, that stuff looks good no matter what happens when you're gone. (laughs) That's true. Today it looks good. Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow when you're gone and you're in office, yeah, eh, that's someone else's problem.
1: That's true. So similar to what you were just talking about, like that happened in Haiti after the earthquake when like... People started like donating rice, importing rice into Haiti because they're trying to help feed people, and that put um, a lot of the rice farmers and the rice sellers out of business, like the Haitians. Yeah, so a lot of them lost their jobs, which is just terrible. But the I mean, I I can think of more cons. I'm so those kids that got to live in that or that are still growing up in that orphanage are treated like royalty like compared to other orphanages it's just such a luxury orphanage compared to what is typical in haiti and on top of that you have you have like volunteer teams from the west coming in like every couple of weeks because that's a marketing tool to continue to get people to donate money to the orphanage so you have People coming in every couple of weeks. Those kids like form temporary bonds with those westerners that come in, and the westerners leave. Then more come in. They form more. It's it's just a it's a weird setup. Um, so I, I I would be concerned about the the health and welfare like long term of those kids, like just what they're exposed to. And,
0: yeah, that's pretty wild. I mean, it it kind of begs the question. You know, is it, is it better to help? I mean, I think yeah. for the most part, people's motives are pure. Like the people who donate to these causes really believe they're doing something good. Yeah. You know, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. But but yeah,
2: how do you. It's got to be a Jane Jacobs approach. It has to be grassroots. Yeah, you, you have to define yeah. the need and make. The, you have to understand the problem and then address the problem as, as it needs to be fixed, not yeah. slapstick.
1: Americans showing up. Yeah. I'm still trying to answer that question. I don't I don't know. Like when yeah. I I'd say the first five years being back from Haiti, my thought was I don't think I don't think we should have done that. Like been over there at all. I'm kinda with you. I'm kinda with that line of thinking. Because
0: I also look at you know, when some something tragic happens in America do we get people from these other countries donating and coming to help rebuild and yeah, all this other stuff? Some do. The affluent ones, the ones
3: that... that that's yeah. a tough question because people give to those in need. Right. Don't necessarily give to the U.S. if there's a... you know, If it was a countrywide catastrophe, maybe. Okay,
0: but let's say after 9-11, some, some major, major catastrophe that the whole world stopped that day and was glued to the TV. And I mean, that was, that was a very tragic time in in American history. And, you know, did we see a lot of people from, from around the globe coming to help out and rebuild and help people? Maybe maybe so, but maybe not to the same extent. And so it kind of begs the question, do you, you know, is it better just to let them handle it on their own and, and rebuild and kind of pull themselves up from their by their bootstraps and figure it out or or what? I mean
3: it comes down to some fundamental questions. And I think <laughs> probably the first one and I'm gonna use an analogy is How many times do you want to rebuild New Orleans after it gets flooded from a hurricane? (laughs) At what point are we fighting something that's just dumb? (laughs) Right. Is it smart to live in Haiti? Is is that something that should be done in general? Are there enough resources? Is the population right? You know, Mm -hmm. those are the first things. And then I think Mark's totally right. Ask them, what do you need? Do an analysis. And it's not, oh, you guys don't have any food? Pizza Hut. Let's get a pizza over here and we fix the problem. But
0: why don't we do that? That seems so simple. Why not, you know, when somebody's... We have a hard time listening. Okay, but if somebody loses a loved one, you know, do you, you... You usually... What do you need? You know, anything you need, you let me know and I'll facilitate that. Why don't we do the same thing in that scenario where if there's a horrible earthquake, you know, somebody says, what are your needs? What can we help you with specifically... And then facilitate those exact needs, and we don't go. Two weeks later, everybody's forgotten.
3: Okay, well, that happens anyway. To
0: everything. Oh, I get that, but I mean that happens regardless. <laughs> I mean, who cares? The news is gonna, you know, yeah, they're gonna move on to whatever the next hot topic is. So, I
2: mean, yeah. I'm gonna punt because uh, this beautiful man I met in graduate school. So, you went from landscape architecture, mm-hmm. and you went to uh, architecture. What, what happened there?
1: So, you mean why did I switch? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the trip, the two years in Haiti had a lot to do with it. Um, I think partially because, like, working in landscape, I felt like we were either working for a developer who already had a vision or an architect who already had a vision, and we were just, like, executing that vision. And so it didn't feel like there was as much creative license in, at least in, like, the the realm of landscape that I was working in and that was frustrating. And then, um, being in Haiti and like seeing the housing need, like really got me interesting, interested specifically in housing and the dwelling. Yeah. And, uh, that's what, I mean, ever since my trip to Haiti, that's what I've been mostly, you know, working on is housing. That's what I'm most interested. Um, so I was like, okay, and I, I kind of always like, you know, I was, I was kind of always debating or waffling in between landscape and like true architecture. And so I think it was just a matter of time a little bit too. Um, but yeah, did that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You wanted to uh, get into it. Why, why'd you go to Houston? What
1: university? you go to Houston? Houston. Um, well, when I came back from Haiti, I landed in Texas yeah baby. landed in Texas. <laughs> um, so prior to Haiti, being in California, I like got rid of all my crap. I got rid of like obviously my apartment, I sold my car, I, like downsized all my clothes. Um, and then when I was in Haiti and I ended up meeting my now wife who was like doing nonprofit work too. She's from Texas, and I, my thought was, oh, I'd, I'd love to be able to bring you back to California, but I have nothing there. <laughs> so, <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's fine. I come back to Texas. I've got a house. You know, we can we can settle down for a little bit and figure out what's next. Um, and I was like looking at going to schools out of state, and there's just a lot more money. So, University of Houston. I was trying to stay in Texas. More practical. Yeah. Yeah. I always remember you would be in
2: studio. You treated it like job. Uh-huh. You were there nine to five. Like, you were. You, your ass was in that chair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> doing the work. like I oh, was there eight eight to Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> eight to five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, With your history, how
3: do you define architecture? What is it to you? Oh, shit.
1: You have to answer. That is... That's such a hard question, but a great question. <laughs> um, I mean I feel like the first like fundamental thing you have to be able to do is you have to like a structure should protect you from the elements, right? So it's got to keep the rain out. Um, it has to respond to the local context. It has to thermally perform well. It has to be oriented right in terms of like how the sun is, is moving. So if you can keep the the water out and the moisture out and you can keep it like in a living, um, comfortable state for human beings, like that's kind of the fundamentals of what architecture is. And then if you can, anything above that that you can do is, I feel like is incredible. But those are the things you have to take care of first. And then you can start thinking about, okay, what does this look like? What What's the character of the exterior what's the character of the interior of the spaces like how can i use this to inspire people how can i um you know make a space where people like feel like the the sky's the limit so to speak and they can do you know it inspires them to to do whatever they want to do in their lives and then like recently i've been realizing that Like architecture is really it's managing it's more like a conductor of an orchestra because you have so many forces at play in architecture like it is not a one-person show like it used to be yeah you know you really have to manage relationships you have to you have to like make the client happy you have to manage their expectations you have to like work within their budget you have to work within their schedule you have to um, like all the code requirements of the local jurisdiction. You have to make sure you're compliant with that, <clears throat> and so like all these different forces coming at the project, and some of them are contradictory in a way, right? Because to stay within a budget, but to make a building that like functions and looks cool is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so managing all those relationships. For all those forces at play, I think is is what architecture is. Yeah, a conductor, so to speak. Well said. That, that was great. That had depth. That, that, was, was, that was very, really good <laughs> yeah. very good. yeah. It was
0: just that's I like that. It was very raw, you know, just to the core. I believe I, really, I think he hit the nail on the head, really, with that definition. Um, so okay, so you you were in Haiti, then you ended up in in Houston. Um, and and now Austin and what brought brought you here?
1: It was the job. Yeah, yeah. Took you a while. You volleyed, uh, <clears throat> volleyed. Uh,
2: All right. Well, now uproot my family, <laughs> bring a <little> Benjamin here, <laughs> you came on board.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean we were. I mean Austin's great. We love it, but we were kind of on this trajectory of moving outside of the U.S. again, mm-hmm. and so we had three different options. And this was the job that I was most excited about. The other locations were more exciting, but like this is the job that I was really excited about. And so yeah, it just made sense to, to pull the trigger. Like moving from Houston to Austin not really that big of a deal. But I think like <laughs> I do think Kate was a little disappointed. She, she was ready to move out of the country again. But it was just it's such an interesting job that I don't, you know, who knows if I'll ever have an opportunity to work at a place like this again. So I had to.
0: Well, can you can you explain, can you elaborate a little bit more, you know, what, what it is you do?
1: Yeah. So I work for a company um, that is a, we would call ourselves a 3D technology company. But uh, what we do is we design and manufacture robots that can 3D print structures. Um, We also design the software that we use to go from like when we design something like in Revit or AutoCAD or whatever program, Rhino, the software that like translates that design and like gives it to the printer in a language that the printer can understand and like actually print. I do like a slicer
3: program for 3D printing?
1: Uh, Yeah, actually, kind of. I, I, I'm not super privy on how the software works. It is, like, <laughs> so above my head. Like, there's a lot of software engineers at the company, and when they talk about coding and all this stuff, I'm just like, okay, I believe you. That's a weird <laughs> architecture <laughs> of architecture to have, like,
2: a coding software. Yeah. Like, it's already complicated <laughs> enough to have, like, how the robots are going to work. Is uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, okay, so we build the robots, we make the software, we design the homes. Um, right now, it's primarily single-family homes that we're doing. Um, we believe that in order to solve the housing crisis, that obviously you can't do that with a single-family home. We'll have to go multifamily. We'll have to go vertical at some point. But it's, it's a matter of um, just R&D. R&D? Evolving the printer, making it bigger, taller, faster. Um, so, it, so the limit is one story now. The limit is one story, ish. Um, we yeah, we've done some two-story structures, but it's it's the second story is all wood frame. Okay. Um, but we are we're actually about to start a project where the client wants us to print second and third story, so we're trying to figure out how to do it.
0: Is that, is that more of a, an engineering problem, or is that more of just the robotics itself? Like, how do you make both? Okay. It yeah, is new. both.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's both. Right.
3: You're, you're, I think one of the fundamental problems with like 3D printing the house, and if I'm not mistaken, it's, it's concrete kind of extruded out just like a regular plastic 3D printer, but it's concrete instead, yeah. you've got a height limit for no reinforcement. So without having any rebar, there's only so high you can take just layers of concrete before that's not going to be structurally sound. Right. I mean, there, so there, there, mean, are there are no cells.
0: steel reinforced walls. Do, do you know they are? They, they are the, the yeah. So you, so as you're printing, you kind of lay in some some reinforcing steel as you go, and the yeah, there's um,
1: there's fibers. longitudinal steel um, throughout the building, and then like every so often there's a there's a core, and that core gets like. Usually a number five and then it gets grouted. Yeah. That that was kind of a
0: more I think more of a technical question that I had, like from the from the build side of things, is um are all of these walls because I mean I've seen plenty of video of the printer, you know, doing its thing and they all look like hollow walls. Do you go back later yeah. and solid fill with, with high-strength grout or, or something? You have to insulate it, right? You yeah. have
2: to have some thermal capacity to hold. You know.
0: Yeah, that, that was another question was like waterproofing, water management. I mean, this is obviously your exterior wall. Yeah. So do you have some kind of admixture, like a Zypex or something that you put in the concrete to repel water? Or do you do something on the backside? Yeah. I mean, technical stuff. Yeah. Sorry. No, at
1: least it, I love these questions. This is like... I live in this realm of yeah, yeah. thinking. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the cool thing about our our wall system is um, there's a cavity, obviously, on the the exterior mm-hmm. wall, and that can be filled with with uh, spray foam insulation. Okay. Um, and so we can really easily change the the R factor of our wall by like making it narrower or making it. Um, thicker so like if we if we go up north and print in a different a colder climate like yeah. perhaps our wall needs to get a little bit thicker um but yeah it, it's like all spray foam insulation all of our plumbing and electrical is also in the wall mm-hmm. um so that's something you gotta kind of i guess
0: build incrementally as you go up you have your or and electrician basically on call as you ride or on site every day, maybe that, that they're there. Actually, to no. I mean, they, <clears throat>
1: they come in after the wall is, is have leave outs of where it's supposed to be. And exactly. Like okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in terms of waterproofing, I think like that is, that has been the most challenging thing yeah. because, um, if you've seen... I mean, I, I know there's a lot of different designs for 3D printed walls out there, but um, the ones I'm working with have a scalloped profile, so it's not a, it's not a flat wall, mm-hmm. and that scalloped nature of the wall presents a lot of yeah. challenges with, like, how do you detail out a door and a window, <laughs> um, because you're trying to put, like, a straight element up against, like, a round element, and it's, it becomes a waterproofing nightmare in some cases. Um, the cool thing is that our, uh, our wall, our exterior wall, if you will put like a a block filler on it and then a finished coat of paint, and that will get us below like a really, really good perm rating. So like, um, basically like nothing's getting through that. Concrete. Yeah. And then, um, just like using mm-hmm. a lot of liquid flashing on the windows doors. Yeah. Windows and doors. Yeah. 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 Hope they don't goop it up too much.
0: <laughs> yeah. I remember we, that's something I paid attention to when we went to the the AIA tour this last year. Was it the Zero House, House Zero? House Zero. Yeah. I have heard of that one. Um, you haven't seen it? <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. We walked it. Um, yeah. And that's something that I would, I kind of caught my attention was yeah. Window and door details and, and how, how to finish that out properly. And, um, no, I thought it, it visually, I mean, it's a gorgeous house and yeah. And so I thought the the details were really nice. I think when it, when it came to, you know, terminating that wall and it it was, uh, uh, I I don't know. I think it also, it's just going to improve with time and the details I
2: think will get better. And Yeah one of the things that i like that i appreciate and i've seen the evolution of is it seems like it's a lot of plan derived decisions right so you're using this as an extruded form and so you make these beautiful plans and uh then there's an attention that was given to the wall like what what can the wall provide and like uh whether that's pattern or if that's a mm-hmm. uh, relief color whatever um I'm curious as to if you start going two and three stories high, Mm -hmm. like what, like what, what, what are the sectional qualities of those things? You know, like instead of like a a bead rolling and then it's just an opening where it's just a window and the window is going to be the entirety of the wall, and so it's just like a a, a, an extrusion. Like, uh, can you can you start having like a dynamic of uh, a, a third the Z axis? Like, can we can you start? manipulating forms to be able to be more than just a wall and uh what you feel in the space but i don't know quality
1: of light uh so you're talking about um we have been playing around with lofting lofting the walls cantilevering the walls um we've printed dome structures um so not only in plan can you articulate the wall, the form of the wall and make it look organic, but you can also start to play with that in the Z direction. Um, So it opens up a lot more possibilities in terms of form, right? Yeah. like you're not working with as many right angles, which again makes it more difficult when you go to finish out the kitchen and the bathroom and, um, at furniture because furniture wants to <laughs> furniture wants to be up against like a straight wall. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it opens up a lot more opportunities to, to just play with different forms. If that's what you're, yeah, yeah. It's more of a poche
2: condition where you're treating it as a, a three dimensional object instead of just living in a, in a, in a plan around. You guys have like you're killing it. You're, <clears throat> you're, you're testing the boundaries of it like daily and, uh, figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And, Probably taking a lot of ideas behind the shed and being like that wasn't what that wasn't worth the uh, headache and it's not solving the problem so we're not going to do that. But I, lo- I love that process. I love that yeah. iteration.
1: We sorry we have made a lot of mistakes. Um, <laughs> we did a lot of mock-ups early on for doors and windows, and where we were like that's terrible that will never work right <laughs> like, frontier that is how we're not doing it yeah like literally um i think we did like 20 window and door mock-ups before we feel like we had something that we could deploy in the field um but it was yeah it was uh, like tons of failure at first yeah
3: yeah i can imagine i guess to that point the concrete that you used to print it's not a concrete you can just call ready mix or anybody, is it?
1: No, it's, it's a not. specialized mix. It is a propri- proprietary mix. Um, so then, why
3: concrete and not plastic? You know, because then we could take all this plastic melt it down because yeah. I'm watching guys on YouTube that just take plastic bottles and create new strips. And then, so I'm just curious of why you ended up on concrete for the media not something else. Yeah. Is it
1: structural reasons like concrete's just, well, I think like, like, um, our system is, it has a lot of similarities to masonry construction, right? So like CMU block, um, people kind of understand that system, um, ahjs understand that it's like it's written into the code and so our system isn't so different that i mean it's different enough to where we have to we have to work with code officials to help them understand like sure yeah the physics of our system um but like i mean once you go into a different material like you're talking about plastic now you're talking about completely rewriting codes um creating brand new codes that have never existed before. And that is, I think a massive undertaking, not that it shouldn't, um, eventually go there. And I, and I don't, I don't know that we will be printing with concrete forever. I mean, I think we are, we're testing different materials all the time. Um, I don't see that side of things as much, so I can't speak to it like what the materials are, but, um, I think concrete just because like so many people are, already building with concrete and that was probably the easiest place to start is it just a, a, a from a cost perspective probably
0: cheaper to use a, a concrete than it is some kind of plastic or, or polymer maybe that
1: yeah that i i would assume so but yeah. I, honestly i'm not i'm not sure
0: um do you do you do a lot of bim where you do a lot of modeling ahead of time to try to work out some of the kinks because i mean i'm sure with the 3d printing it's you're printing the finished product, so there's no going back. Right. There's no rework. One yeah. shot, and you're done. So, yeah. Um, yeah. How, yeah, how yeah. much modeling is done beforehand?
1: Yeah, I mean we we try to we try to model everything like to like LOD super super high, <laughs> um, because it is so different than like typical residential construction where um, you know you can leave. In traditional wood frame, single family residence, there's a lot of things, a lot of decisions you can push off to construction and, and make those decisions in the field, even in terms of like coordinating where electrical outlets, light switches, um, recessed lighting goes, mm-hmm. because if there's a conflict with a wood stud, you can easily <laughs> like move that stud or you can just, yeah. you know, move the receptacle a little bit. With our system, it's it feels much more in terms of like the amount of coordination and BIM that we have to do up front is more like a commercial building because um, like all of our receptacles, all of our switches, all that stuff like gets um, there's a void that doesn't get printed so that that electrical sleeve can like slide right in. So if you miss one and you have to come back, now you're talking about like core drilling through the wall, mm-hmm. which is time consuming, laborious, and um you just, you don't you don't want to have to do it, um, and then it looks like shit in the end. So the amount of yeah, you just have to you have to know where everything is yeah. going before you hit print. Right, right,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of again. I mean, coming from like a, a Builder is like man, all of these details have to be worked out Beforehand before you even you know set yes. up the rig in the field and get everything going. I mean all of these details So is it is it kind of structured like a commercial job in the sense that you know? You know, you know what the cabinets are gonna be you know what the selections are and none of that changes it just It is what it is and you go there's no very little changes in the
1: field very little change in the field. Right. I mean, the only changes, we've, we've had changes, of course, but that's because, like, a product is discontinued, no mm-hmm. longer available, or it has too long of a lead time. Those are, you know, that, that's still happening, of course, but um, very minimal changes compared to a regular construction. <laughs> So you dialed in,
2: you keep toying with this material, you figure out its limitations, you make a better plan, you make a better building. Are you guys doing any post occupancy evaluation are you guys saying all right, a year later I'm going to go talk to somebody who's been living in this thing what are your what are your what's what do you have any
1: user feedback that that's informing the design? We really don't yet We have only let's see we have we have four houses that are being lived in right now in austin um East Austin. Probably another six in East Austin, um, but they've only been lived in for maybe a year, so we don't have we don't have tons of that data yet. We need that data. Yeah, um, we're we're looking forward to like getting that feedback, but we haven't had. We're so young and so new that we haven't had um, enough, enough time has it passed. Yeah, so, how long have you been around? Uh, I think like five years tops it
2: what's, what's the scale on this how, how do you when's the when's the drop ship is that hey baby we're, we're doing 10,000 of these a, a month like when is a what is the, the all right we, we've got it we've got the prototype is us hit print like when is that a is there a, a target date is there like a, a moment of
1: adoption yeah it's a it's a tough one because like we we want to like mass produce homes because we we believe that this form of construction will help us build quicker, more cheaply, more sustainably. But then there's also like we do care about design and aesthetics, so um, it's like we don't we don't want to copy paste copy paste copy paste too many times. We want to do that a little bit. Um, so that we can get to a place of... Like, we have a product that is profitable. Um, but we're always going to be, like, designing new stuff, like new floor plans. Um, so, yeah, and we're always going to be designing new robots that probably, like, increase our, our print bed, can go more vertical. More. And, and when that happens, that opens up just so many other opportunities. So I think, like, the... The thought is with our current uh, printer system that we we kind of develop a catalog of homes that can be replicated by that thing, and that thing never goes away. But we continue to evolve it, and then you know the next printer has its own catalog of structures that can be printed, and we just you know keep going and going and going.
0: Well, y- y'all are already. Planning whole communities, right? I mean, is that something we can talk about?
1: Yeah. So we have a, <laughs> we do have, uh, we have a community in North Austin um, currently underway. We have a couple more in design. We have a community down in Mexico in design.
2: What's your day to day? I mean, you you started at this company so early, so I mean, how much of your time is actually designing? Are you managing people? Are you essentially a manager nowadays? Where you're just making sure that people are <laughs> facilitating yeah. the idea, or are you sitting back and figuring out these these hard
1: details. It's, yeah, it kind of depends on the day. Um, recently, I've been doing, been living in schematic design world, uh-huh. like developing. Yeah, I, I love that. Actually, developing floor plans and. Um, that's been a, that's been a lot of fun. <laughs> Before you have to figure out how you're going to waterproof it, you're just, yeah, addressing uh, yeah. Like the, I would say the first six months I was, I was in the weeds of figuring out details, like door, window, top of wall to roof connection, all the waterproofing stuff. Um, just focused on that. And then once we got the set of details that worked and looked good, um, then I started to manage projects more and now um now that like our our big communities are kind of rolling and our printers are doing a good job, I'm kind of like able to pull off of that from the construction administration side of things and I'm able to like jump back into schematic design wearing, wearing a lot of hats wearing tons of hats mm. um that's prob that's the hardest thing is that there's. So much uncertainty, so much ambiguity, like on the day-to-day, you just never know what's going to come up. Um, sometimes you have to put out some fires, and you don't get this done. And so you, you have to shuffle <laughs> shuffle a lot throughout your day. What do you do for fun outside of work?
3: Uh,
1: what do I do for fun? I am... I'm trying to, like, keep my mind and body in shape these days, like, which is really hard, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, tr- play a little tennis, um, keep a seven-year-old alive, mm, <laughs> uh, yes. um, yeah, there's not, there's not five this true time, but I do love, like, really love driving out to Hill Country and, um, just, like, enjoying the scenery, like, doing a little wine tasting. Living the life. Kind of. More, more than in Houston, yeah. Like, when are you gonna go uh, to Freeport? Like, <laughs> it's better than Haiti. <laughs> yeah. It oh, is oh, <laughs> cool, man.
2: All right, well, appreciate having you on, man. Um, uh, it was good talks. I feel like we got to got go through a lot. Yeah. We'll definitely have to get you back on.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much. I mean, especially as the technology develops mm-hmm. and you know we're able to do bigger and better things. I think yeah, we'll definitely have to. Uh, get you back on and, and talk about some of those if you're able to. Yeah, so fun. yeah, um, but yeah, appreciate your time and uh, yeah, I look forward to getting you back on. Cool, thanks okay. guys.